This is episode 225 of That Shakespeare Life. See, coordinating visual elements for our show today, including images of the hobby horse dances and costumes, when you sign in as a patron on our show notes page. If you're not yet a patron, you can sign up today to access these detailed show notes and all the benefits of supporting our show at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. So you have the hobby horseman that is a man who is wearing a full horse's body around his waist. Uh, this body is made of wicker work and then is covered by cloth. And there is an actual horse's head and a tail. And the man appears as the rider of the horse. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. When you hear the term hobby horse, you may be tempted to recall images of toy wooden horses that children laugh and play on. But for Shakespeare's lifetime, this term refers to a particular kind of dance that featured in popular celebrations like May Day and Morris dances. The hobby horse dance was characterized and often costumed representations of a person riding a horse. It was a staple feature of these celebratory dances. Our guest this week has written extensively about the history of the hobby horse and where they would have appeared in Shakespeare's lifetime. We're delighted to welcome professor at Evotos Lorand University of Budapest and the author of Shakespeare's Hobby Horse and Early Modern Popular Culture, Dr. Natalia Peakley. Dr. Natalia Peakley is Associate Professor at the Department of English Studies at Stovos Lorand University, Budapest, Hungary. Please excuse my pronunciation there. I'm sure Natalia does it better. She is the current president of the Hungarian Shakespeare Committee. Her research interests are wide-ranging, with a strong focus on early modern popular culture, Shakespeare, theater, drama, cheap print and emblems, besides the present-day reception of Shakespeare in the theater and popular culture. She has published extensively on these topics and contributed to several books. We have a complete list of what she has written and where you can find more about Natalia's work in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Natalia. Welcome to the show. Hello, it's great to be here. Were hobby horses always performed with a person dressed as a horse, or were they sometimes a person riding a fake horse, almost like a stick horse, for example? Let's make it clear. Let me explain. There are two major types to hobby horses. One is the so-called skull and pole type, which is, you know, you have a, a large stick and there's a skull or a simulacrum of a skull attached to it, and there is a man holding it up. It's, a kind, it's actually a biped structure. So you have a man with this uh, skull and pole uh, structure of a horse, and usually it's uh, covered with a foot, uh, with a, with a foot clothes. Or, uh, or the man might be wearing a sieve and it gives some body to the horse, but it's a two-legged creature. This is the folkloric uh, version, which appears in many regions uh, all around Europe. And there are some ex- examples for this in Great Britain as well, uh, like the Pesto Old Horse uh, and some other. But uh, the hobby horse that I'm talking about in my book, the early modern hobby horse, is of a different type. It's called a tourney horse, or a tourney-style horse, And the way you have to picture it is a kind of a horse and rider. So you have the hobby horseman, that is a man who is wearing a full horse's body around his waist. 
Uh, this body is made of wicker work and then is covered by cloth. And there is an actual horse's head and a tail. And the man appears as the rider of the horse. And it has, you know, several legs, not just two. Uh, and quite often there are even false legs uh, with stirrups attached to the to the foot clothes of the horse. And this is the horse that, that this is the hobby horse that appears in the battle window and the landscape painting, which remained to us from Shakespeare's time. And we have other textual evidence confirming this type of hobby horse being very, very popular uh, in Shakespeare's lifetime. What is it about the purpose of a Morris stance that was considered essential to have a hobby horse be depicted for one of these performances? We are talking about uh, the early modern Morris dance in England, and it's uh, very important to clarify because there were so many different forms in so many different regions for the Morris, Moresca, Moriscan dance, um, and other names. And actually, the dance itself uh, also has various forms and types appeared in various contexts throughout Europe from the late Middle Ages to the early modern times. Uh, but when we focus on, on you know, Shakespeare's period and the type of Maurice dance that, that became very, very popular in England uh, in the 16th century, uh, we have a highly popular phenomenon, a, dancers, uh, a set of dancers. It could be four, six, or eight dancers, only men, who were dancing with very high leaps, um, representing the vitality of uh, full culture and a kind of a fertility aspect as well. Uh, and they were wearing uh, very, uh, they were, they were wearing uh, sleeves which were decorated with long flowing ribbons and they were also wearing bells on their calves and knees. So it was a very lively and quite noisy uh, country dance to which the fool, the hobby horse, Maid Marion, and occasionally even Friar Tuck was added during the 16th century. So to put it simply, the hobby horse and the Morris dance both became very popular by the end of the 16th century as symbols of popular culture and mostly of rural culture, but they were never totally, absolutely attached. So the hobby horse was a very popular but not indispensable part of the Morris dance uh, in the 16th and 17th centuries. They both made it to the popular stages and, uh, the, and cheap print products, so they became, they became very, very popular. Now, you're talking about Maid Marian and Friar Tuck from the Robin Hood legends? Yes. <laughs> so they're so, retelling that story? Okay, we can tell that story as well. As, um, as typical with such uh, you know, folklore and popular phenomena, we have different traditions mixing. So when you have the Maurice dancers with their long ribbons flowing and the high leaps, because they were symbolizing vitality, fertility, and the hobby horse uh, with its aspect of fertility was also attached to it. It was easy to connect them to the other native tradition in England, the Robin Hood tradition, which is also associated with green men and, and, and the wilderness and, and you know, nature. Uh, so by the time, so, so we have different traditions, different native traditions merging in the Morris dance uh, by the time Shakespeare and his contemporaries make uh, the hobby horse and, and the Morris dance appear on public stages and, and also in other forms of entertainment. So when the hobby horse is appearing in these performances, is it a friendly character or a villain? <laughs> Definitely a friendly one, although not without a bit of aggression. It's a playful and a bit sexual kind of aggression that the hobby horse represents. Well, if you look at the picture in the battle window, or, or in the, uh, if you look at the two depictions of the hobby horse, you can see that it was easy for the hobby horseman to drag a girl under the skirt 
or the footclothes and do God knows what to the girl there. So it was a, a kind of an interactive character uh, which not only danced and leaped and entertained the audience, but also interacted with the audience, uh, sometimes in a more or less sexual way. And this is what, uh, what an anonymous period refers to from the time uh, there was this cheap pamphlet published in 1614, Cobb's Prophecies, and there is a description of a country Morris dance there, and I'm just quoting it. So, then, oh, uh, but when the hobby horse did vihi, oh pretty vihi, then all the benches gave a tihi, oh pretty tihi. So this association of the hobby horse and benches having fun together was a kind of a sexual play or a, an almost sexual play. And one more aspect to the hobby horse was that uh, in this interaction with the audience, um, the hobby horse was the character which uh, asked for donations from the onlookers. Sometimes it was the fool, sometimes it, it was the hobby horse uh, man, or the hobby horse or the hobby horseman, but definitely both the fool and the hobby horse were these extrovert characters in the Maurice dance interacting very strongly with the audience. Now, Shakespeare mentions the hobby horse phrase seven times in his plays, at least twice, suggesting that it is bad for the hobby horse to be forgot. This phrase, quote, the hobby horse is forgot, end quote, comes up in Hamlet and again in Love's Labor's Lost. Was the hobby horse a symbol of good luck such that forgetting the hobby horse was seen as a kind of bad omen? Or why was it significant to forget the hobby horse? Well, there lies a complicated the history behind <laughs> behind this uh, this question. So first of all, uh, for all for all, the hobby horse is forgot was a very popular phrase, a kind of a set phrase at around the turn of the century, at the turn of the 16th and 17th century. So it's around 1600. Uh, there are several plays, royal entertainments, cheap pamphlets which mention the phrase almost uh, literally in the same format. We have Hamlet, we have Love's Labours Lost by Shakespeare. Also, Will Kemp's um, uh, cheap pamphlet about his own Morris dance contains the phrase uh, almost verbatim. Uh, and there is a vengeance on uh, royal entertainment, the entertainment at Althorpe, and uh, another anonymous quote uh, Old Meg of Herefordshire from 1609, which have this phrase. So it must have been a viral phrase at the time, as a set phrase. And um, scholarly opinion has had for long that it's a line from a lost ballad. But um, but actually, I did some research in this, and, and there is no such ballad. Okay, a lot of ballads were lost. So out of the four million ballads uh, circulating in these two centuries, only a, a fragment remained to us. But still, there must have been some other trace of a ballad. So I rather surmise that uh, there must have been a folk song uh, what's more, a dancing folk song which contained the line for all, for all the hobby horses forgot. And now coming to Hamlet and how Hamlet uses it uh, in Shakespeare's tragedy. Where Shakespeare was a very tricky author. And the more you study Shakespeare uh, the more, and the more you study the age of Shakespeare, uh, you realize how tricky he was. The word hobby horse had actually five different meanings in Shakespeare's time. And people used the word in these five different meanings. And only one of them was the Maurice Dance character, this costumed half horse, half man, hobby horse. It could also refer to an actual uh, small horse of Irish origin, a hobby or a hobby in. Uh, it could refer to the toy horse uh, for children with a stick, you know, and the horse's head. Uh, it could refer to loose women or horse. <laughs> Uh, and also to fools, and 
in association, uh, it could also mean a kind of a trifle or a thing of no value. So these meanings were all used uh, in the late 16th and early 17th century by people of the time. Uh, that is why the hobby horse was a, a presented a kind of palimpsest of meanings. And contemporaries of Shakespeare could understand it on different levels. And Shakespeare is playing with it a lot here. So we have Hamlet, and we are just before the mousetrap scene. Uh, so they are kind of preparing as audience uh, to watch a play. And we have already had these very boldly references by Hamlet to Ophelia about lying in, in her lap and uh, talking about country manners and such. And then he has this passage about the hobby horse being forgotten. Uh, on one hand, he remembers his father and he longs for a bygone age, which belongs to his father. And the hobby horse, by the end of the 16th century, is partly a remembered and partly a forgotten uh, and partly a still alive uh, cultural phenomenon uh, because, okay, uh, it's a bit complicated again, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but it belongs to an age that was um, seen by most people of Shakespeare's time as a kind of a bygone golden age, uh, a merry old England type of a, uh, uh, type of a period when everything was better. Uh, that is, I mean, we always long for bygone ages, which were much better than ours. But in Shakespeare's time, this bygone age uh, that has already passed uh, was strongly associated with the hobby horse. So Hamlet uses this phrase uh, as a viral phrase, you know, kind of a crowd tickler. Also, he uses it to refer to his old, uh, to the old, to old Hamlet, his father's time as a bygone age. Uh, but because it's also in the context of sexual flirting with Ophelia, uh, the meaning of the hobby horse as a loose woman is lingers in the background of the audience. Uh, and also because uh, Hamlet is playing his own fool, in a sense, so is behaving and, and joking um, as a fool, as a court fool, he, uh, the meaning of the, of the hobby horse as a fool is also lingers in the background for the audience uh, who were living in Shakespeare's time. It's all lost to us. So we just have, you know, fragments of these uh, subsidiary meanings. Was the hobby horse also associated with love? Because Shakespeare uses the hobby horse in Love Labor's Lost to refer to his love being called a hobby horse. And then in A Winter's Tale, Leontes refers to his wife by calling her a hobby horse. Based on your definitions for hobby horse, are these insults, I guess, to these women? Or how was that supposed to be taken in terms of the cultural significance of calling a woman a hobby horse? Yes, they are insults. Okay. <laughs> they are insults. <laughs> so uh, in this meaning of the hobby horse, the word means a loose woman, a prostitute. Uh, this is how we made it in Love's Labor's Lost. And actually we have, uh, you know, this young page, when very, very perky page, uh, Moss talking to his master, Don Armado, the Spanish knight. And Armado says, but oh, but oh, Moss, the hobby horse is forgot. And Armado asks, cause thou my love a hobby horse? And most answers, no, master, the hobby horse is but a colt and your love perhaps a hackney. So it's not only the phrase and the reference to a loose woman that we have here, but also most reaffirms this meaning of the, of the hobby horse as a loose woman with the word hackney, which is a hired horse. And I, I think you can see the similarity or the parallelism. Yes, here. we can. We follow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I already mentioned Hamlet. Uh, and interestingly, in Othello, we have... Uh, we have it all turned upside down because in a play which resonates with the word whore a lot, actually all three women are called whores at one point in Othello, we have 
the actual prostitute, Bianco, using this word. So it's quite unusual that um, it is a woman using it in a, as a kind of an insult to a man. The scene is, when, uh, is the following. So we have Cassio giving Bianca, his prostitute, uh, the handkerchief, Desdemona's handkerchief that Emilio has stolen from Desdemona. And actually, Iago and Othello are just watching this scene. And then Cassio gives uh, this handkerchief to Bianca with the words, take the pattern out. That is, uh, you know, copy the pattern, the embroidery uh, on it. And then uh, Bianca is quite offended, uh, of course. And he returns the handkerchief with the words, take it, give it to your hobby horse. So actually, it's a woman calling another woman a hobby horse, but it's also an act of denial and an act of defiance on part of uh, Bianca. So that's um, why I'm saying that Shakespeare's, Shakespeare uses this word in a very tricky and uh, highly complex dramaturgical way, as opposed to his contemporaries, who usually have much simpler or more direct references. And finally, and most painfully, in The Winter's Tale, we have the king of Sicily, Leontes, calling his beautiful, virtuous, and very pregnant wife a hobby horse that is a whore. And this tragic act of jealousy will launch a series of events that ends in a family tragedy for 16 years. I don't think until you explained the meaning of the hobby horse, the full force of that comment had had hit me there of what exactly he set off. But because, of course, it does just this domino effect of of tragedy in that one for sure. Now, I want to ask about the hobby horse being used as symbols for political devices. I think um, I'm trying to draw a modern day parallel and I think of the phrase crybaby or lame duck imagery that that people in, in government will throw around in campaign speeches to make a point or to insult their opponent. And I wonder if hobby horse had ever been used by by Shakespeare or other early modern playwrights in this political way. Yes, uh, not in plays, uh, or you know, you know if we, if we <laughs> ignore the, the previous comments about women called hobby horses <laughs> uh, as insights, with a political edge, it was first used in the Marple tracts in the late 1580s, early 1590s, and there was this controversy around the bishops uh, and, uh, and and Puritans, and we have uh, uh, we have in the, in one of the Martin Marple tracts an insight when. Um, when the Archbishop of Canterbury is called John of Kent and his hired man is called a hobby horse. And this is a politically abusive term at the point and at the time. But it seems to disappear as a political term of abuse for a while. And the political edge returns later in the, after the 1610s, mostly in the 1620s, when the whole idea and concept of popular rural culture becomes a site of contention uh, between the king and the more radical Puritan Sabbatarian factions who hate festivities. And this is when uh, uh, King James I issues uh, the Book of Sports, a royal decree defending country pastimes. Uh, and it, it's, there seems to be this kind of um, unity or this kind of an association between king and common people as opposed to the Puritan sects, uh, which shows in a uh, public place we uh, chose in professional plays on the public stages at the time as well. Uh, we have a play by John Fletcher, Women Pleased. It was first performed uh, in 1620, in which the hobby horse and this whole contention about whether the hobby horse should be included in the Morris dance or not is also a question of being a Puritan or not being a Puritan. And the hobby horse is called uh, the Beast of Babylon 
by the Puritan character and his wife. And um, there are all other abusive terms used, used for the hobby horse, like it was got by the Pope's um, coach horses and its mother is the, is the mayor of ignorance and other such um, abuses directed at the hobby horse, which was a symbol of popular culture at the time and also a symbol of a political faction, so to say. Natalia's work mentions two noble kinsmen specifically in relation to the hobby horse and the portrayal of a mad woman of a Morris dance. Natalia, how is the hobby horse used in two noble kinsmen? Again, it's uh, not an easy question to answer. So let's start from, from the play proper. Uh, the two noble kinsmen is a collaborative play. It was written uh, by John Fletcher and William Shakespeare in 1613 and performed in 1613. Uh, and this is a time when Shakespeare is starting to retire and actually giving his place over to John Fletcher uh, with the company, with the Kingsman. And they are working together on several plays. The Lost Play Cardenio, uh, The Two Noble Kingsman, and All Is Lost or Hundred Days is the other title. And um, well, scholars debate uh, which scenes belong to Shakespeare, which scenes belong to Fletcher. But I think I mostly agree with Lois Potter, who said that they were really working in a collaborative way. So they were writing stuff, but they were also revising each other's uh, scenes. And um, in the Morris uh, dance scene, or the, in, the, in the scenes which refer to the country Morris dancers and the Hui Hors, uh, they, are mostly be- they mostly belong to Fletcher, but they must have been written in imitation of Shakespeare or under the supervision of Shakespeare. So it's very hard to tell whether it's Shakespeare or Fletcher talking about the Hobby Horse uh, or in the Morris dance in the Two Noble Kinsmen, especially because it's used in a, in an unusual way. We do not have an actual hobby horse appearing, but uh, we have a bavian or a baboon or a monkey. And But this bavian or baboon or this monkey figure is also a sexual figure. Uh, it's emphasized that he has a long tool. And you know what I mean here. And the Morris dancers, again, appear untraditionally, not only men, but an equal number of men and women. And the mad jailer's daughter joins them to fill out the ranks, so to have an equal number of men and women. So this is how she joins the Morris dance, which is partly typical, partly untypical. It's typical in the sense that there are country people performing it for the aristocrats, Theseus and his court in Athens. And also there's a schoolmaster directed them very similarly to Peter Quinn's in A Midsummer Night's Dream. And there are also sexual references, a lot of them, as usual with such country pastimes. But as I mentioned, we don't have a hobby horse, but we have a bavian, and uh, also women appearing in the Morris dance as actual dancers is untypical. And it all goes back to a mask, to a royal mask uh, written by Fletcher's good friend, uh, Beaumont, actually just a little bit earlier in 1613. And this royal mask featured, or anti-mask, uh, featured an equal number of men and women, a he-baboon and a she-baboon and other uh, people. And because it was part of royal entertainment performed for Queen Anne and Prince Henry and Princess Elizabeth, it could not have included a hobby horse. You know, hobby horses were unseemly for royal audiences in royal entertainments. As regards the jailer's daughter in the two noble kinsmen, she's a very interesting character. She falls madly in love with Palamon, one of the knights, uh, and it's hopeless. And actually she knows that. So she knows that this love is hopeless and she has no means to get to Palamon. But still, she cannot, you know, so she cannot stop loving Palamon. And therefore, she goes mad. And while mad, she sings all kinds of country and body songs and, and joins the Morris dancers. 
She talks about a hobby horse to his father. She talks about a, a gift horse, a love gift given to her by Palamon, but it's all imagination. So that's what she imagines. And that's when she mentions the hobby horse in connection with this imaginary love gift of a horse, how the hobby horse can dance. And it's not just any, so there are, again, there are different traditions of horses mixing here uh, in her imagination and also in the text of, of the play. So we have this imaginary love horse as a gift. We have the hobby horse dancing and prancing mentioned. We have the trick horse of uh, Banks trick horse. And because it, it is uh, emphasized by the daughter that this strange horse can even read and write. And this all symbolizes the kind of uh, deviation that the jailer's daughter uh, represents in the play. Obviously, there is a ton to unpack and explore about <laughs> the hobby horse and its history. And just looking into it, just this little bit we've covered today is fascinating. I wonder if you could point us in a good direction for some books or resources that you could recommend we use to explore this further. Mm-hmm. While I started writing my book is that I found a niche in scholarship because the hobby horse has been treated by several scholars uh, in several disciplines, and none of them want had a look at the big picture and uh, you know because the hobby horse is a very complex uh, symbol in Shakespeare's lifetime and we have dance historians we have anthropologists we have folklorists we have people of iconographic studies we have uh, animal studies mentioning the hobby horse but I had to connect the dots so um, actually my I, I think my book is the first one that sort of connects all the dots but I did learn a lot from the following books first of all there is um, John Forrest's The History of Morris Dancing Uh, from 1455 to 1740, which is a magisterial work. He collected all information on Maurice dances together with his colleague, Michael Heaney, for several years, even a decade. And after this, he wrote this book, which is a very good book in terms of records and in terms of looking at the hobby horse and the Maurice dance from a dance historian's perspective. But when it comes to literary or theater history aspects, he has he makes some mistakes or he makes some even factual errors, but it's a great book. Another book that that is worth reading is Mary Ellen Lamps, The Popular Culture of Shakespeare, Spencer and Johnson. Although she doesn't talk very much about the hobby horse, she talks very informatively about how when it comes to early modern popular culture in England, we should talk about cultures and productions in the plural uh, of popular culture because there are so many variants and so many different forms. And finally, Ronald Hutton's uh, The Rise and Fall of Mary England is the work of a cultural historian stuffed full with data. Uh, so it's very dense with information. It's not a bedtime reading, but, <laughs> but it's the kind of you know, book that you keep on your bookshelf close to your hand. And if some people are interested in other, uh, in other works from an anthropological or folklorist uh, perspective, I would recommend Violet Orford's or uh, Cody's book, Ritual Animal Disguise, but I think they will be put uh, in the show notes. Yes, we will link to Natalia's book in the show notes, as well as these resources she's mentioned today. And Natalia has graciously sent us a list of scholarly works that relate to the Morris dance, to the hobby horse and performances in early modern England. And we will include the entire list in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you go there to find those. Natalia, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. Well, since I started listening to your podcast (laughs) sometime during the pandemic, I have been thinking about this question, and I would opt for Holinshed's Chronicles, 
Raphael Hollinshed's Chronicles, because with the Bible and Shakespeare, I have all the poetry and drama I need and the spiritual guidance, but I need more stories or histories. And I have never, ever had the time to read all the six huge volumes, folio volumes of Hollinshed's Chronicles. And I think I would be well set for, with stories for a for long, long years to come. <laughs> I think that is a good use of your time on your deserted island to finally finish all of Hollinshed's Chronicles. That's an excellent choice. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? I'm working on several projects, um, as most scholars do, uh, but I'm mostly excited about uh, my, pro- my research projects on unsung heroes of Shakespeare's time. Uh, that is uh, writers, career writers, mostly of cheap pamphlets, verse and prose pamphlets, who were very, very popular in Shakespeare's lifetime, and they were very well known, but they are totally forgotten by now, like Nicholas Breton or George Vidor. Uh, I ran into their works while uh, researching on, by doing research on the hobby horse, and I th- simply fell in love with their very bad poetry. They are usually very bad poets uh, in aesthetic standards, but they are very informative on the culture of the age. And Nicholas Breton is mentioned in my book several times, as well as George Vidor. And actually, people do not know them, but they are very interesting in terms of uh, cultural history. It's like, you know, time travel of sorts. I'm excited to hear you studying that. I can't wait to see this project come out because I feel like we are constantly talking and referencing two pamphlets in the context of our show. It's you're always finding out something about Shakespeare's culture from these from these pamphlets. So that's that's an exciting project. We'll look forward to seeing that come to fruition. Natalia Peakley, thank you so much for being here with us this week and taking us through the history of the hobby horse, explaining what it is and how it worked in Shakespeare's lifetime. This has been a fun conversation and I thank you for being here. Well, the pleasure was mine. Thank you very much. If you like the show today, be sure to let us know about it. Drop us a comment and a rating on the platform you're listening from today. And now for the show notes. Don't forget to stop by the show notes for today's episode. It is packed with tons of extras. Natalia has sent over links to resources as well as provided images and pictures from her research into the history of hobby horses. And we have made all of that available completely free in the show notes page for today's episode. You can find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 225. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP225. The show notes page is also where you can unlock even more bonus history extras by signing in as a patron. We have an orange Patreon button on the show notes page where you can log in with your Patreon credentials and unlock pages of extra content. These are called our detailed show notes and they're only for patrons. So make sure you log in there to find those. Our show this week is brought to you completely free and without any commercials, thanks to the support of listeners just like you who signed up to be our patrons on Patreon. Thank you for your support. If you would like to be a part of continuing the legacy of William Shakespeare and get access to insider extras like detailed show notes, printables for our DIY history episodes on YouTube, and a monthly Shakespeare history book club, then sign up to be our patron right now at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. Our show this week is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash, and our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.